0: My guest today is Craig Ruit, Director of Investment and Wealth Advisory at Deloitte Consulting. Craig, welcome.
1: Hi, Alex. Great to be here.
0: So I thought today, you know, the best place to kick off with you, given your background, is you know, this current crisis that we have, COVID-19, mm. has totally changed the way that, mm. that we live, changed the way you know, we travel, how we work in teams, and it mm. obviously it's had a very large impact in sort of governance framework and, and risk Uh, management tools that we think about uh, in the world can you give Mm. us a bit of a context on on what are the issues that you're seeing
1: yeah look i think it really i think the first thing is it just brings home to everybody how rapidly things can change so if we think back to january i don't think any of us thought that we would have been subject to an extended lockdown we wouldn't be able to travel around australia uh you know, many of us would effectively be, you know, working from home whether, well, whether we liked it or not, although for many of us, we've found it's quite suitable. So I think the first thing that it comes home is just how rapidly things can change. And and even though there's been a market rebound, certainly comments from people in the market was that in some respects, the the sell-off that occurred was some of the fastest sell, sell-offs they've seen for some time. And so I think that's the first thing. Things can change very rapidly. And what does that then mean for a portfolio? It means that in any portfolio, there's a need to be aware of the risk factors. You know, So we've seen, for example, property impacted, retail property impacted in particular. But one of the other things it also highlights is that you can have structural shifts. And it's interesting, you know, another topic that often comes up is is climate change and ESG generally. But if you think about climate change, why that is an issue that's gotten onto the radar of regulators, of investors, um, you know, beyond sort of the, you know, the the general social and environmental issues is, of course, the fact that with something like climate change, you can see over time a readjustment in terms of how people live, where they live, you know how they travel and that of course will have implications for the value of things like property as well as the value of different types of companies it creates opportunities so clearly we see that certain the demand for certain things will go up just the same as we saw in in, I'll call it the COVID-19 crisis you know demand for broadband went up you know telecom companies have done okay out of it anyone who was selling office supplies or um, you know electronic equipment has done well through this crisis and of course other industries such as hospitality and retail got hit very hard so I think the very first thing that it shows is things can change very rapidly and you know that apply if you think about something like liquidity risk historically that's been one of the features of liquidity risk it can be very digital you go from a situation where you have liquidity to a situation where you don't so I'd say that's the first lesson that things can change very rapidly I think the second thing that comes out of it then is that any sort of risk measurement or risk management approach won't be perfect for the next crisis. And we always hear this. So we hear that regulators look at the last war. We hear that you know, risk management approaches always look at what happened in the past. We look at the past to try and give you an idea of what could happen. So people who were doing the stress testing, people who have done the liquidity stress testing, the liquidity planning... They didn't know they were going to get hit with an early release rule, which has happened in the industry now, but they were better prepared than if they'd done no sort of stress testing. Because one of the things about stress testing and scenario analysis is it makes you think about what can actually happen, and then you can start planning and preparing for that. There's also some short-term things. So clearly, one of the issues that's come up is, again, valuations have become unstable and that can be hard hard to strike. And there's actual implications if you have a portfolio of assets and then it's a unitized portfolio so, member, uh, so investors can enter and exit, do you actually have things that are sufficiently up-to-date in terms of valuation, even allowing for the uncertainty, so that people can actually trade with a reasonable degree of equity? So I think there's quite a few things that have come out of it. Number one, things can change very rapidly. And number two, more planning, better consideration of possibilities you are always in a better position to deal with whatever may happen, even if it isn't what you planned for.
0: Well, let's let's um, dig into some of the climate change piece because yeah. really a, a lot of the conversation around sort of climate change, yes, okay, mm. I understand t- temperature can rise a little bit mm. and it's mm. going to have an impact, but yes, people can move and adjust slowly. Mm. You know, one of the biggest concerns around climate change is that it's been very hard to model it from a risk mm. perspective and mm. it's sort of a bit of a mm. stick your finger in the air and see which way the wind's blowing. But mm. COVID-19, you know, is effectively a, an ESG risk, right? It's it's a health mm. risk di- directly mm. and it's had a significant impact um, yes. in the way we live our lives. It, it's a health crisis that's, you know, uh, had ramifications across the economy and across mm. financial markets. So this almost is like a, a test run of some mm. other bigger sort of climate risk sort of mm. issue that that comes through. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing is, is that you can tell people to, to model these risks, mm. but we've got a situation where governments alongside central banks are coming back to be the supporting factor of, of these Mm. sort of issues. So, Mm. you know, is that what we should expect when there's another sort of climate emergency as well? Um, I think,
1: yeah, look, so I, I don't want to proclaim that I have some insight into what governments and central banks will do, but I think, look, we would expect, I think it's reasonable to expect, and we've kind of become conditioned to expect this, that when you have a sharp market adjustment, governments are often going to step forward to try and soften that blow. And in the last 10, 15 years, maybe, well, it depends how far back you want to go, really, there's been this huge tendency to inject liquidity every time there's a problem. I think what liquidity can do is liquidity can move asset prices, but liquidity can't change a structural shift. It can only p- possibly drag it out over a longer period. I think one of the things that also happens, though, is if you think about injecting liquidity into the economy, it's very... Um, It has a very broad impact. So if you happen to have something that is, it's not the most efficient way of, say, helping a sector that's suddenly challenged. And so I think the first thing is, yes, you'll have things like central banks injecting liquidity in response to a crisis. You'll have governments writing checks, assuming they're in a fiscal position to do so, which ours is fortunately at the moment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the sectors you've invested in will get backed at that point in time. So, for example, and I'll give a really extreme example with climate change, so there is an issue, and it's not necessarily just due to climate change, but in some du- in some places you have coastal erosion, which has actually meant that in some places, you know, the first row of houses by the beach are becoming unlivable. And now, historically, governments and even local governments would try to do things to prevent that occurring. And in many cases... We're seeing around the world now councils going, well, actually, we can't do anything about that. We're going to have to just let the sea take it. Now, sure, you might get some sort of compensation for losing your house, but if you know the time comes when your property is going to get resumed by the sea, you might get compensation for it. I don't think you'll get compensation, though, for the sky-high price you bought in at. And so, I think the thing is, yes, there will be government support as things adjust, but equally, that doesn't necessarily mean there'll be government support for every sector of the economy and for every single thing you've invested in. And I think one of the other things, Alex, is that it's not possible in the long run for the government to completely hold back structural change, which is due to, you know, a broader, you know, a global macroeconomic factor or, a, or dare I say, an environmental factor, which often ends up becoming a, 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 an economic factor. It's just very difficult to hold that back forever. You know, and I think that's true of so many other things we've seen. I mean, if the government, for example, wanted to discourage um, online shopping for some reason, okay, I suppose they could ban it outright, they could tax it more heavily, but there's been a structural shift there for a reason, which means that you're in a bricks and mortar retailer, you're still exposed to that economic structural shift. So there'll be support, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, every asset owner needs to think about exactly which sectors they're exposed to.
0: It, it's interesting you sort of talk about sort of the government coming in to help. Uh, there's mm. a really always a a very fine line between yep. sort of helping and being a support. Or mm. you know the the other um, problem that happens in these sort of circumstances is that you end up with moral hazard, and so the the real risk um, management tools and governance sort of seems to fall by the wayside because they do believe you know that that they will be supported. Um, you know, and that, this that's always an issue. And you talked about sort of the bigger structural changes mm. that are, um, you know, in the marketplace. You know, there's three big ones being debt, deflation, and demographics that mm. are all looking pretty negative for a lot of mm. the Western world, mm. and mm. yet we've got this superannuation system that is, you know, built on more growth, people mm. paying into the system, and, mm. you know, generating retirement incomes ultimately. Um, mm. So I sort of worry about the risk- you know, management tools today, here and now, at the same Mm. time, the government, you know, providing a backstop Mm. um, to some degree. And then on one degree, then they've done something else, which is create this early access. So can Mm. you maybe give Mm. sort of, Mm. how do we frame this?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I guess there's an element of as an asset owner, as an asset manager, you can only deal with what is actually within your zone of control, so to speak. Um, And so part of that is, having the right risk management to actually think about possibilities and then and then dealing with those and so the classic one is if I'm going to buy regulated assets so, so I'm buying you know power stations and those sorts of regulated utilities I do need to think about as part of my investment decision the fact that whatever government rules that jurisdiction they could actually change the rules on me and I'm actually very dependent on that sort of uh, on that sort of regulatory um, what's the word? you know, whatever the regulations are at that point. So I carry a lot of regulatory risk.
0: It's a sovereign risk as well, right? Absolutely. In terms of, you know, when you invest internationally, you've got sovereign risk with particular assets. Now is another issue internally Mm. in your own domestically that becomes Mm. a sovereign risk.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I think the thing about the early release though, that's that's, again, that's a very hard sort of risk for any super fund to manage, I would say, because that's a fundamental rewrite of the underlying rules of the system. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think that's almost, you know, this might sound a bit defeatist, but it's almost in the category of an unmanageable risk because that is the fundamental, you know, that is in the same category and that's not as extreme, but the government could say, for example, tomorrow, well, you know what, we've decided given circumstances where the system is and all sorts of reasons that superannuation will now be optional. That suddenly changes everything. Or we're going to say, well, actually, you know what, people can take out, any person can now take out up to x dollars and we're going to make this an annual thing you could take out now i'm not going to say that i'm not saying those are things that are being seriously considered but those that have implications it's very hard for anyone to actually prepare for that sort of an eventuality Um, i think it's about being more generally ready so being more resilient so if you you build an organ, say for example if you build a strategy that can withstand liquidity shocks then you're better able to withstand what's just occurred if you if you build a system, one of the and it's a really difficult thing to do, Alex. But one of the key things for any organisation, but certainly any asset owner and any asset manager, is to say is there an, is there a fundamental underlying assumption that my system, that my my process and my portfolio is based on? Do I have an underlying assumption? So before the GFC, one of the underlying assumptions through the financial markets was well, you could get liquidity, although you might have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And that challenge, and that really got challenged. You know, I remember, so I used to be with APRA and we used to talk with funds about liquidity and, that, you know, they many funds really just could not see there was even a potential issue. And, you know, at the time it was a little bit like saying, well, it was like trying to dis- describe a colour to a blind person. You know, they, they, there was no way they could conceive of it because there was this mandated inflow at that point in time and, the, and really the whole system was growing at that point in time. And then the GFC was a sharp shock that showed, actually, this isn't the case. And, of course, if we look at the data today, even pre-COVID, you know, a good percentage of superannuation funds were no longer in that member cash flow position that was positive. So, you know, but there are things that are very difficult to know. It's really about challenging the underlying assumptions and trying to build something that's actually resilient. So if you deal with as many risks as possible reasonably, you're more likely to be able to withstand those things that just can't be you know, can't actually be foreseen because the fact is there will be things that you cannot foresee. That's just a reality. But it's having a system that's resilient to it and doesn't rely on nothing changing.
0: I'm curious because you, you talk about resilience there that needs to mm. be there and and being prepared for the unknown, right? The the, yeah. tr- the true black swan. But how, how yeah. do you, you know how do these companies, or the companies, these super funds, yeah. do that? You know wh- what what yeah. are the processes that they need to go through? Yeah. as they think about these challenges, because it's very easy to sort of discount yeah. things as being too far to the yeah. left, too far to the right. These can't yeah. happen. You know, yeah. wh- how do they go about that?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing is it is looking at the range of possibilities. It, but I think one of those things is is there an underlying assumption? And if this underlying assumption gets snapped, we snap. One of the other things, though, is one exercise that I've seen done is where someone will actually sit down and say, All right, this is the exercise. You've got to look forward, say, five, 10 years, and you've got to work on the assumption that you actually failed. So, so whatever, whether it's a fund manager, super fund, whatever, okay, this had failed. So, tell us what could lead to the failure. So, it's actually looking at, it's almost like a reverse stress testing, I'll call it, or a reverse scenario analysis. So, you actually look at what can actually bring this undone. Mm -hmm. So, it's like a pre-mortem. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. It's saying what could bring this undone. So, rather than saying, oh, well, you know, just what are the probabilities and can this actually say, hang on, what could actually bring this undone? And then actually saying, okay, Given that if it happens, it's a, it's a severe impact, do we want to think about doing something about it? Now, it might be that you say, well, you know what, to insure ourselves against this is going to cost us 1% a year. Well, that's frankly too expensive. But one of the key things is, and this is the really important thing about governance, because, you know, there is an interest between a bad process and a bad outcome. And one of the things is if you ever had a bad outcome, you need to be able to show what was the process, what was the chain of decision-making So if, in fact, you think about something and say, you know what, this is what could bring it undone, we've looked at it, this is what it's actually going to cost us to defray that, well, maybe then we're not going to pursue it for that reason. You then have a position that later, with the benefit of hindsight, is actually quite defensible. And that's one of the things, because when things go wrong, everyone's wise after the event, and very few people realize they're wise after the event. And whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's something that comes out in the media or whether there's, I mean, if you think of the Royal Commission that we had two years ago now, you know, that Royal Commission was going back, you know, over things that had happened many years earlier. In many cases, decisions got made and the results only came became apparent years later. And so that's why it's really important if you do that pre-mortem, you look at it, and even if you say, you know what, this is a risk we're not going to do anything about, well, then you want to be able to explain how you looked into it and how you decided it wasn't worth doing anything about. But one of the really important things there is, Alex, is if you have something where this is something that can occur, and it's actually founded not so much on what we're not doing today, but on what we are doing today, then you want to think about, well, hang on, what do we do to mitigate that? Maybe we're going on the right course, but if it creates some fairly severe risks for us. We want to think about what we can do about those.
0: So you, you talk a lot a lot about risk. One of the risks yeah. that always bothers me, and I'm a little bit biased because I sort of focus on the financial um, concerns, is that a lot, mm. of, a lot of funds, you know, run their, their models, mm. they run their risk um, scenarios using very similar and sometimes the same platforms. You know, we, yes. don't, we don't need to mention names, but they use the same risk platform to, mm. to model and do testing. And so my concern yeah. is that they're all running with the same approach, but not really truly being, you know, thinking about, or well, what happens if there's some sort of a systemic risk that comes with, you know, modeling these failures where we all need to generate liquidity at the same time and, and mm. we need to sort of balance ourselves out, you know. So it's all good and well having mm. risk frameworks, governance frameworks, but if we're running through the exact same tools and the same scenario tests, You know, I worry, you know, how do you take into consideration that it's not just you, but there's 20 Mm. or 30 other funds that will do exactly the same as you at Mm. the same time.
1: And I think that's where, in some respects, and I know this isn't directly answering your question, Alex, but I think in some respects, this highlights why you need a multitude of different measurement tools. And some of them, I would say, are quite sophisticated, but some of them are relatively, I don't know, some of them are relatively crude. And so, one of the things is this is when you look at things like not just, say, running the statistical model and getting the very complex outcome, maybe the VAR number or the C-VAR number or something like that, but even looking at the simplistic thing of saying, well, what's my exposure to these different factors? You know, mm-hmm. what's my exposure to different industries? Because one of those things then is you can say, okay, because this is the good thing about scenario analysis is you can actually... So, you base scenario analysis not on a mathematical number. You base the scenario analysis on something that occurs. So, COVID-19, there's been an impact. It started with the pan- with a disease, and it was a pandemic disease that's basically spread around the world, and it's hit different economies in different ways, but it was an event. And so, I think, the, so in some respect, it's not about, I don't think the answer to, to that sort of modelling risk that you've described is actually more modelling. I think often the answer is, falling back onto some other tools, some of those other simple things, which is understanding what's my exposure, you know? So if something happens and shops get shut, how impacted am I? If a particular sector gets shut, how impacted am I? If the 5G network or 4G network got shut down tomorrow, how impacted am I? So it's those sorts of things. And so it's not necessarily – and in short, you might – if everybody ran that same – sector shutdown scenario yes you're right they're all going to think about it the same way and position their portfolio the same way maybe but one of the things is really about saying well how exposed am I to these things and then what happens in those things so it's actually I don't think the modeling risk is addressed with more modeling I think it's addressed then by the fact that you look at different measures and there you're measuring more what's your exposure What's your factor risk? Those types of things.
0: So it's almost a bit game theory slash war games. You know, you're, you're trying to sort of think mm. about, okay, what are other people going to do in this circumstance? And you're almost second guessing and trying to move, you know, dynamically almost through a, a scenario of, of what could go wrong.
1: Potentially, because I think, and in a way, one of the risks you're talking about there is actually the risk of crowded trades.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly.
1: And so, and so really that's about then saying, so there the issue isn't necessarily what the PE ratio is. The, the issue is more, okay, what if I am just think down at an individual stock level? Well, how much of the daily turnover do I hold? Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm going into some sort of a unitized vehicle, do I know how much of that vehicle I am? You know, am I actually 80% of that unitized vehicle? And so even though, you know, and it might be, uh, say, the assets underneath the illiquid, it may appear to have a reasonably re- a good liquidity promise back to me in terms of how frequently I can get my money. But if it turns out I'm actually most of that fund, can I get out? So it's about doing the due diligence to actually understand who am I invested with. You know, a lot of these things relate to, you know, the alignment. So how am I managing my relations with my fund managers, Mm -hmm. you know? And and so a lot of it is about what's the level of transparency? How much do I know? Who else am I actually, who am I actually invested alongside? And so these are things that aren't necessarily about the modelling. They're about things like due diligence. They're about what I call almost the human intelligence. You know, what do I actually know about who I'm dealing with? And so, you know, and when it comes back to things like, because if you think a crowded trade, that's actually a liquidity risk. It's not so much based just on the asset. It's based more on the market. And so it is about sort of that market analysis.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious because you talk about sort of, you know, the the, the liquidity problems that are out there and mm. the ability to trade and try and reduce the yeah. overcrowding. But we've got this yeah. also situation where we're seeing a restructure of the industry where uh, there's this push for more, mer- for more mergers in the space. Yes. Isn't yes. that just creating more potential risk across the whole sector? I,
1: I guess you'd have to say, like mathematically, you'd have to say yes, because you're going to have fewer asset owners or fewer super funds, each one with more assets. Mm-hmm. You'd have to, so you'd have to say on that level, yes. I guess like lots of things, things play out at multiple levels. Uh, you would also, though, each of the super funds, at least in theory. Would have a better liquidity risk profile as they get bigger and as they have you know larger membership, more diverse membership bases. So I think, for example, one of the things that was highlighted with the COVID nineteen thing is, you know, very much the I mean liquidity. When you're an asset owner, or, or not so much as an asset owner, but or as a super fund, you know, liquidity isn't just what I'm invested in. It's how quickly do I have to give money back to other people. Mm -hmm. and what impacts that and what impacts the flow of contributions and so we've seen the risk of funds that are exposed primarily to one industry um you know this isn't a new risk i mean it's not that you know so this isn't a new risk it's a more it's more publicly known now so i think the first thing you'd say so to the mergers yes presumably each of the funds then has a better liquidity risk profile because it would have a more diverse membership base um Clearly, there's other issues with mergers as well. I mean, it's difficult to know in advance that a merger will actually yield benefits for members. If you look at um, public equity markets, many company mergers don't actually yield benefits for the shareholders. So it's, you know, but I think from a liquidity point of view, yes, mathematically, if you've got fewer super funds, then the, the, the liquidity risk does get increased. Um, at a system level, but I think that's also offset by the fact that each of the funds are less likely to have a liquidity problem because, again, they'll have a more diverse membership base. So, on balance, they those two things may balance out. It's hard to know exactly how much. But you are right. At a system level, there's still going to be a greater risk of crowded trades. Mm-hmm.
0: Let, let's take it back to the member, right? In, yep. in, in this current sort of environment… Yeah. There's been an issue where, you know, members, you know, members have got an obligation or an expectation from their fund. We we keep Mm. talking about member outcomes. Yes. But we've had this early access, you know. So how do funds, you know, in their thinking, make sure Mm. that they maximise member outcomes, you know. Mm. Have we now retested basically the promise that we've told people what Super is supposed to deliver for them?
1: In a way. In a way. I mean, I think- you know, I mean, the fundam- one of the fundamental tenets of superannuation is that it's a long-term investment. Um, and what we've told people is, well, you can get the money now. And, you know, for a lot of, and of course, you know, it correlates, I mean, it's, it's it's classic, right? So it'll correlate with size of balance, um, the security of their employment, and their access to financial advice. And so, I mean, the reality is that the lower your income, you know, there's a strong correlation. The lower income, the less likely you are to have secure employment and the less likely you are to be getting financial advice. And so those three things then work together to increase the likelihood of people taking the money out. I, I think, I don't know that it's changed the promise because I think a lot of the people taking the money out aren't really thinking about it in terms of, oh, well, this is different to what I had before. I don't think too many people who are taking the money are complaining. It's certainly going to have an impact over time. One of the things it does do is it reduces it does reduce the ability of super funds to invest for the long term because they actually have to think now. Because one of the issues is it's a little bit like crossing the Rubicon in the sense that the government did it this time. Now, yes, this is literally, it is actually a one-in-100-year event. So from that point of view, you can say very rare, very special circumstance won't get repeated, but also the fact that that possibility has happened doesn't mean that there's an increased likelihood in the future. So I think it it slightly modifies the promise and it slightly modifies the ability of funds to sit there and say, yeah, I'm investing for the long term. Because even though we have portability of funds and investment portability, very few members have actually utilised that relative to the size of the system. So that hasn't actually represented an issue for any fund in the past, or generally hasn't. I shouldn't say it never has. So, I think it's a slight modification of the member promise. I don't know that it feeds into the thinking of members that way, but I do think it does then impact potentially, you know, the need of funds to think much more about liquidity. Mm -hmm. Let's keep
0: it on the the member conversation. And another member issue that came up over the last uh, sort of couple of months, and I know Investment Mm -hmm. Magazine's written about it, is sort of the... Mm. The valuation issues in a number yes. of property options, infrastructure, um, oh, yeah. and whether there's equity, member equity fairness mm. around pricing, mm. so that when new money comes in, that it's fair yeah. to each person. You know, how how do we try and deal with this? I know APRA mm. has some rules um, mm. around it, mm. um, but I'm curious if you've got any sort of additional thoughts in in terms mm. of, particularly in these quite volatile times, where people mm. are also, you know, got ability to take money out um how do you make sure that it's a fair valuation for all members and that everyone benefits yeah
1: i think the first thing is that there's no easy or perfect answers so the very first thing really is that you know as part of your valuation governance as part of your valuation process you know if you have these unlisted assets the first thing is you know under what circumstances do you have i'll call it a trigger for revaluation now that could be a formal revaluation, or it might actually be look, we're going to have to adjust the value given the observable inputs that we have, but we will need to adjust the value and do that, you know, as much as possible in a real-time setting to, to take account of the fact that members can transact on the other side. So the first thing is, okay, you know. Are we actually checking the valuations and are we actually looking at what's occurring? And one of the really important things is super funds do need to be able to explain the economic logic of the valuations they hold. So, you know, so in the past, APRA has said, for example, that they don't expect directors of super funds to be valuers. That's not reasonable. But, you know, if, you know, and to give a crude example, if every asset in the world has gone down 20%, but you hold a portfolio of unlisted property, which hasn't changed in value, you need to be able to explain that. So, so it's really about that, you know, having the governance process to actually look at when should we be adjusting these things. The other key thing, of course, is how often can people actually transact in the particular fund or vehicle. And so you want to keep those two as linked as possible. So, so it comes down to what are the thresholds for revaluing, what are the trigger events for revaluing, and then how do you actually go about doing it? And how much are you looking at the observable inputs? If you actually find yourself in a situation, you know, and there are rules around this where if it's severe enough, you actually have to look then at suspending pricing and things like that. Um, that's not an easy situation to actually work through. can be done. Um, the But the key really is having that, that framework so you can actually say, hang on, let's look at what's going on here and work out what we're doing. And again, the key thing is being as up-to-date as possible with the values you put through. And so the other key thing then is how much does this actually impact your price? So if for example, 1% of your assets are unlisted, there's probably no reason to even be, uh, you know, your unit prices can still keep rolling. If in fact 40% of your fund or 50% of your fund is unlisted assets, then you have a much bigger and much more difficult problem. But the key thing is, you know, what are the trigger events? What extra advice do you need at that point in time? You know. And are you, you know, how are you able to adjust the valuations to ad- to deal with this? But there are no easy answers.
0: Is one of the answers maybe to move away from daily liquidity to maybe weekly liquidity or, or something mm-hmm. like that? Because we've got mm-hmm. a lot of assets mm-hmm. that yep. don't value until the end of the quarter or end of six yeah. months, but yep. we still offer daily liquidity.
1: Yeah. I think, look, as a general principle, as a general principle, you want to line up your your frequency with which your members can transact with a frequency with which you can revalue things or at least revalue them um, often enough. So reducing that frequency would be good if you could practically do it. Um, but the reality is that with the portability rules, uh, especially in the MySuper space, you've, you've actually got to be prepared to pay reasonably quickly, which means you've got to have a reasonably up-to-date transaction, uh, transaction prices that you will use. So to the extent that you can reduce that frequency, that would help. But the extent to which you can do that is is sometimes limited.
0: Now we can't finish a conversation without talking about some of the other regulations that are out there, right? As a former yeah. regulator, I've I've got to touch on what's been going <laughs> on with RG ninety seven, the DDO, yeah. the design and distribution obligations. You know, what's mm. what's happening um in, in that space?
1: Yeah. Look with um I think the first thing is that a lot, I mean, member outcomes, there's no delay. A lot of other requirements, there's been some delay, mm-hmm. you know, and especially the, the design and distribution obligations in particular have been pushed back for six months. You know, I think the key is that while these things have been delayed, they haven't been deleted and so the reality is, if you think about design and distribution obligations, the, the the objective or the need to have a target market determination, to then actually have the the necessary systems and the information flows to actually know, you know, who's buying your product, and you know, do the people who are buying the product fit with your target market, those sorts of things, you know, then to be able to do sort of value in use assessments, all of those types of things, you are still going to have to do that. Oh, I shouldn't say you, but I mean any super fund, any investment manager distributing products out there is still going to need to be able to meet those obligations. They're just delayed. Mm-hmm. And so I think the thing is, yes, due to COVID-19, there's been a delay on some of these obligations. But equally, any, you know, anyone who's in a position to start preparing for them, you know, a longer lead time is always better than a shorter lead time. Because whenever you look at some new rule that takes effect at a particular date, often there is a need. For whether it's system work or specialist advice or anything like that and those resources tend to become much more pressured as you get closer to the actual go live date. and so you know so ddo it's been delayed for six months rg97 you know that's you know that's still proceeding uh, again rg97 it calls for very detailed analysis of, of your costs and understanding your downstream costs so with all of these things there's still a lot of work to do i think it's it's still part of that reaction of you know wanting to try and get a focus back onto, you know, whether it's better outcomes for members or trying to ensure that members are only winding up in the right types of products, all of those sorts of things. Or, of course, I mean, it's interesting. So if you think of, I'll say member outcomes, DDO and RG97, so member outcomes is about saying, well, you've got products, you've got to look at what you're actually getting for the members. You actually have to framework that says, what are you trying to achieve and then work towards that. And then if you're not doing that, apply the management feedback loop to actually fix it design and distribution obligations. So then if I just look at the commonality there, you're actually saying, well, as a product manufacturer, you're responsible for understanding who this product is actually suitable for. So And so, of course, it only applies where personal financial advice isn't provided. So, But if there's no advice in your distribution, then you have to work out who this is suitable for. So again, seeing to it that you are going to provide or market this product to the right people. And if you find out systematically that people who are not in your target market are buying this product, then you need to start thinking about what that, you need to start addressing that. RG97 is about then empowering members again or consumers again by giving them more information, very detailed information. Some might say, well, how understandable is that information? But about giving them more information so that they can, you know, compare, Um not so much performance, but that they can actually compare the total costs that are effectively being consumed in, in the fees they pay when they buy products at how much of the performance will get eaten up by fees, those types of things. Um, and so, again, what you have is you have a set of rules that are both trying to empower the consumer but are also trying to ensure that the producers are aiming this at the right people and then actually building it in the right way for them. And I think that general trend will continue, Obviously we will see in say three, four years' time how well this collective set of uh, rules have actually assisted. And I think you know I think it's still part of the trend that we're still working our way through. All right, Craig, that's
0: been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today.
1: All right, thank you for your time, Alex.
0: Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.